If you would turn your Bibles to John 18 as we continue all the way with him and as we cross the brook Kidron today in John 18 and 1 and 2, we'll set ourselves up for that. But as I introduce this, I'd like to introduce this with a, a picture actually. Holman Hunt was a surrealistic artist and he painted the picture that you see on the screen of the interior of a carpenter shop with Joseph and Mary, or Joseph and the boy Jesus working. Mary, you see, is present there. And as Jesus paused in his work and he stops to stretch himself, the sun makes a shadow. And you see behind him the cross on the wall. The title of this painting is The Shadow of Death. Another picture that's not done by Holman Hunt, but another engraving is a picture of little, little Jesus as a boy running to his mom. And, and stretching out, and the, and the shadow that they show behind them is the cross. But it's a reminder, as we read the Gospels, it's clear that the death of Jesus Christ was really in view from the outset, from his very first appearance when he came. And so I'm going to throw a couple of things as we're in Lent season, and just as introduction today, what is Lent? I mean, why do we do special services on Wednesday during Lent? Is the observance of Lent commanded in the Bible? Is Lent merely a time of giving up things? Is it just meant to be a somber time as things go along? And when, when I mention Lent, what comes to mind for you? Many Christians in our world don't celebrate Lent. They, they celebrate up to Easter. They don't necessarily know about Lent and the things that way, or they just think of it as a time when people are supposed to give up things in that way. And, and Lent is, yes, meant to be a somber perception of what Jesus has done and gone through for us, but we can't lose the focus all the way along the way that it's also a time of joy because we know that Jesus on the cross took every one of our sins upon himself so that we could have eternal Lent. I mean, eternal life. What is Lent then? I believe it's important I just take a little bit of time with you so you get some of these things and know some of the history. Lent comes from an Anglo-Saxon word which literally means spring. And from the very first, the early Christians celebrated Easter. They celebrated Resurrection Day as a joyous festival. They celebrated Good Friday the day of our blessed Savior's death, but they did it with the deepest mourning. And they would do a complete fast until late in the afternoon on that day. Eventually, what happened in the church is that the time of fasting lengthened itself to 40 days, resembling Jesus' fast for 40 days in the wilderness before he was tempted by Satan. His fast, however, was a complete fast. This fast was one where they would omit certain foods from their diet. And sadly, in the course of time, this became as a holy work which earned favor with God. And by the way, they would do this fast from Ash Wednesday to Easter, and they didn't count Sundays. That's why it's the seven weeks, and you get the idea there um, as they came along things. But When they would do this, it became such a holy work, which is actually contrary to what a fast is supposed to be with regards to what Scripture said. We read it earlier in Matthew chapter 6. You'll see the words on the screen again. 
how Jesus said when you fast, you're not supposed to make yourself look somber so people think you know you're fasting. (laughs) You're not supposed to let the people know what's going on so your Heavenly Father will reward you um, what's done in secret. So the question is, why do we still observe Lent then? Well, Luther and his fellow reformers kept this ancient festival of the church, which truly honored Christ, the triune God, and it had some actual spiritual value. They, however, stripped the festivals of all the practices which were contrary to God's word. To us, Lent is not a time of fasting or giving up certain sins. If something's wrong on Memorial Day or on the 4th of July, it's wrong during Lent, too. (laughs) If giving up certain foods helps somebody draw closer to the Lord or giving up some thing, uh, something that you do, helps you in that way, uh, that's not a bad thing. Do it in secret. (laughs) As we've noted in Scripture, So we don't fall into the pride and the self-righteousness or just the flippancy of it. The real reason we celebrate is because Good Friday and Easter mean so much to us. To us, Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection are the very heart of the Bible. (laughs) The core of the gospel. And they fulfill the reason why Jesus came into the world. We read it earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. (laughs) But did you notice how that ended when Micah read it earlier? But indeed, Christ has risen from the dead. And I think of Paul's words in Galatians 6, 14, but may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me. An eye to the world. Lent means so much to us because the pillars of truth mean so much to us. God doesn't tell us in Scripture to observe Lent. But I think if we don't observe it sometimes, we rob ourselves of the glorious opportunity to draw closer to Christ, our Savior. And by the way, in a reality, we celebrate Lent all year round, don't we? But it is good to have a time where we specifically focus of Jesus' story to the cross so that we can behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me set the setting for you of John 18, 1 and 2, and let's get into this text and cross the Kidron. It was late at night, most probably after midnight. Um, Greg took us to the upper room on Wednesday And Jesus and the disciples went out after that. And Jesus had experienced his triumphal entry on Sunday. He had just spent time with the disciples in the upper room here, as we just said. He had said, take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood and the covenant. He had predicted his death. He had told them of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter would be coming. He told them that they would be hated by the world for being his disciples And when you get to the end of John 16, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, he said, I have overcome the world. And then he prays in John 17. He prays for himself 
Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may be glorified. Then he prays for his disciples. Sanctify them by the truth for your word is truth. And then he prays for all believers, even for us today. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their, that is the disciples' message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you and I are in me and I am in you. Look at those first two verses there of John 18. Let's see what happens now as he's done this with the disciples as they leave that upper room. It says there, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. Sometimes they refer to it as the Brook Kidron. And on the other side was an olive grove or a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Let's start here today with the crossing of the Kidron, the crossing of this brook. In itself, this isn't a difficult feat at the season of the year that this was. This would have been a very dry valley at this time. The Kidron, a lot of times, the brook did not contain much water. It was a dry bed that ran through this valley. By the way, do you know what the other name of this valley is? It's the Valley of Jehoshaphat. I did not plan that for today. It's just the way that it works out. But it's called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and it's talked about in Scripture as the final place, the final battle of things taking place in this valley and different things as well. But it separated Jerusalem, the city itself, from the Mount of Olives. And a thousand years before this, King David, weeping and brokenhearted by the rebellion and the usurping of his kingdom by his favorite son Absalom, fled for his life across this same brook. David did not know what lay ahead of him when he crossed the Kidron. Jesus did know what lay ahead for him. He realized he knew all things. He knew what awaited him on the other side in the Garden of Gethsemane. A place evidently very familiar to the disciples and to Jesus. But he knew the agony. He knew the bloody sweat. He knew the betrayal that Judas would do. Just hours before he had told Judas what you are about to do, do quickly. He knew the scourging he would receive. He knew the crown of thorns. He knew the nails. And yes, he knew the cross. These were reality to him. Let's look at David here and the son of David. Let's compare this with, and by the way, this isn't meant to be some John F. Kennedy Lincoln assassination comparison, but if you compare these two, when David crossed the brook, his family and his faithful subjects crossed it with him. When Jesus crossed this, his faithful disciples were crossing the brook with him. The man who played the traitor during David's time was a man by the name of Ahithophel. David's very own counselor who had eaten bread at the king's table with him. Now it was Judas who had just eaten the bread of the Passover with his master. When David crossed, he meekly allowed Shammai to curse at him and pelt him with rocks. You and I know what happens to Jesus later on that night and into that day. In Isaiah 53, it says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He's led like a lamb to slaughter. 
There's a vast difference, however, between these two. David was corrected because of his own transgression, which included such crimson stains and sins as murder and adultery. Jesus, on the other hand, was innocent. He was perfect. He was the spotless Lamb of God. He was not punished for his sins. Or he was not punished for his sins. There, there wasn't any. He was punished for the sins of the whole world. For my sins. They were laid upon him, the sinless Son of God. Every evil deed that our hands are guilty of, every sinful word we've ever uttered, every unhealthy, lewd, or wicked thought that our minds have manufactured, every sin of desire or emotion was laid upon Him. In 1 Peter 2.24, it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. In Hebrews 7, verse 27, it says, Unlike the other high priests, Jesus did not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Think of it for just a little bit. If we could put a weight or put a value on the misery which follows in the wake of one single sin, Jesus took the sins of the whole world. If we did a little math and we start to multiply that one sin and all its miseries by all the sins that just one person commits, and we multiply it by all the people on earth for all time, we get a picture of the load that Jesus bore as He crossed the Kidron. Yet He paid for those sins once for all with His precious blood. In 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, again, those words, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, were you and I redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to us from our forefathers. But it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. In the 1993 movie, In the Line of Fire, Clint Eastwood plays a Secret Service agent, Frank Horrigan. Horrigan, as the story goes, it's not based on a true thing, but it uses true events from history. Um, Horrigan had protected the life of the president for more than three decades as a Secret Service agent, but he was always haunted by the memory of what happened 30 years before when he was a young agent assigned to President Kennedy. That day, when, when the assassination took place, um, he, he froze. And so for 30 years, he wrestled with the thought, with the ultimate question, he, can I take a bullet for the president? How will I react if something like this happens again? Secret service agents, by the way, are willing to do such a thing because they believe that the president is so valuable to our country and the world that he's worth dying for. And obviously, they wouldn't take a bullet for just anybody. When the climax of the movie hits, Horrigan, Clint Eastwood here, did what he was unable to do earlier, 30 years 
And he does take a bullet for the president. This is Hollywood, so it sets it up that way. At Calvary, the situation was reversed. The God of the universe actually took a bullet for each of us. In fact, he took all the punishment due us. At the cross, we see how valuable we are to God. A point here to make is that delay is dangerous. Do you believe that Jesus did this for you? That's where things come to at this point, doesn't it? Have we accepted what He has done, accepting Him as Lord and Savior and His promise that all our sins are forgiven fully, freely, forever? The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, the Scriptures say. We shouldn't put off such a serious thing as our soul's salvation to another time. I think of the story of a distinguished government official who was handed a letter by a messenger with an instruction to read it at once. This was a a Greek official a number of years ago, and uh, he didn't read it. First, he thought to himself, I need to enjoy the party I'm at. They were having it in his honor, and so he puts the letter, he's told to read it, he puts it into his pocket. And he tells the messenger, he says, serious things tomorrow. But that letter contained the details of a plot against his own life. Somebody had found out about an assassination plot and sent him and warned him. He never saw tomorrow. That night an assassin plunged a deadly knife into his heart. And thus it is with some who put off the serious matter of their soul's salvation to another day. We're never promised that the next day will come. Near the Jaffa Gate at Jerusalem, there's a small flat plain on the top of a hill called the Terrace of Indecision. It is so flat on that spot that when it rains, I'm told, the water scarcely knows which way to go. Part of it slowly moves over the west side where it flows into the Valley of Roses, as it's called, and it gives life to those roses and those plants and the fragrant flowers that are there. The rest of it flows down the east side into the valley of Tophet and finally into the Dead Sea where nothing grows. But we need not have a terrace of indecision in our life. Let us rather have a rock of decision. Let us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, receive what Christ as our Savior has done and live a life that is useful for Him. And again, we don't even have the power to do it. (laughs) But don't get caught in that indecision. We can't save ourselves. But Jesus can. We cannot atone for even one single sin. But Jesus can. We cannot cleanse a single stain. But Jesus can.
Was it for you that Jesus crossed the Kidron into Gethsemane? Was it for me? Knowing that he would recross that same Kidron Valley, that brook again, he would recross it bound and being led to Calvary. Yes, it was him. Will you not say to yourself or look to him when the Holy Spirit calls to you, Lord, save me. Take my heart and my life, Lord. It's yours. As Jesus was crossing the Kidron, he found himself in a mysterious valley of Jehoshaphat. This was a dark, bloody little gully. I didn't tell you about this before. Because it separated Jerusalem, the wall of the temple wasn't that far away. And the sacrificial blood of the animals and the purification water of the temple, which was situated on the heights above, before the moon would rise again the next night, the blood and water would flow from Jesus. But often the blood that came out of the temple would flow down and trickle down into this brook. And this time, it would be Jesus' blood and water from his riven side which flowed. But his blood, unlike the blood of the animals that the priests were offering, this blood would have actual cleansing power. For he is the rock of ages cleft for you and me, is he not? As the song says, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. This is a difficult, yet it's a definite requirement. Jesus' journey across the Kidron was a most difficult for he knew what lay before him. Martyrs like John Huss and William Tyndale, those in, in this last century, in the 20th century, which there's more martyrs in the 20th century than all the centuries combined. Perhaps while they sat in prison, they didn't know whether they would be executed or not. Perhaps someone on the outside would stay their execution, swing a deal, get them a full pardon. But this was not the case with Jesus. He knew that his death was sure. It was required from the day sin first entered the world. God had decreed that his son must die if a man was to be saved or to have salvation. To meet with certain death, Jesus crossed the Kidron. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, he crossed it willingly and even joyfully. Even though he had the burden. The very thought that he, by his suffering and death, would save from their sins and made it po- make it possible for billions and billions of people who have ever inhabited this planet. This thought filled his Savior heart with unspeakable joy in the midst of the sorrow. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only one who could save lost humanity. There was joy there as he crossed the Kidron, though it was not evident as he would be betrayed and just a few hours later be condemned for the most, to the most horrible death that the world had ever known, crucifixion upon a cross. But the joy would come in knowing what the result would be.
the opportunity for your and my salvation. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, it says in Hebrews 12, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. My friends, someday, in a sense, you and I must cross the Kidron. But when we cross, we cross its dark waters alone. No human being will accompany us unless the Lord comes before this, we will die and will be taken from our loved ones. But we must all make the journey through that valley of Jehoshaphat, spiritually speaking. But if we have received the gift that He offers and not turned our back on salvation, we won't be alone. He who crossed the Kidron some 1980 plus years ago, will be with us. And kind of like David's words in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever as it ends, Psalm 23. With Him, our Redeemer, and our ransom at our side, we shall not enter Gethsemane with its blood, sweat, and tears, but we shall enter our heavenly garden above, the new Eden, which He prepared for those who love and truly know Him. That's what I hope and pray today, that you and I believe and that we trust, that we don't play the game And I hope that we can be assured that when we have Him, when we've received what He has done, we can know that Jesus took the steps to the cross and we can go with Him all the way. The worship team is going to come up in a bit and they're going to sing that song that we've sung before, Jesus, keep me near the cross. And the words are good to remember. Near the cross, I'll watch and wait, hoping, trusting ever, till I reach that golden strand just beyond the river. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your words. Thank You that You crossed that brook. You went to the garden. Thank You for going to the cross. Thank You for conquering death, Lord, suffering for us, and thank You for rising again. Help us, keep us near the cross. I pray these things in Your name, Lord, and I just ask for You to touch our heart. Amen.